I bet they had fun playing that one, Daniel. Fantastic. A Tim Burton, Sweeney Todd, that's the opening theme, and I love that film to pieces. Yes, yes. such wonderful uh, organ uh, playing there. Yes, you can yes. almost imagine Johnny Depp, no, almost playing Phantom of the Opera having doing <laughs> yes. that. But of course, that's got the great title sequence over it as well, where you see um, the rain coming down from the clouds and then finally ending up in the sewers and mixing with blood at every yes. single turn. It's a fantastic yeah, I, did, I enjoyed season. Sweeney Todd. I love it. I think it's yes. Tim Burton's best film since Ed Wood. Yes, I say Yvonne had mixed feelings on it. Uh, she uh, <laughs> she even less a fan she of didn't take it quite so seriously, but uh, still, didn't, still thought there was just a little bit too much tomato sauce around. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of gore, of course, um, I lent you Kronos a yes, few weeks ago. Yes, I did enjoy thoughts? watching it, I have to say. It yes. was, uh, I, w I wasn't quite sure whether I would or not, so it's, I must admit, I enjoyed it from the trailer that I saw, and yeah, it was a good film, a yeah. good film. What yes. was your favourite bit about it? Ooh, ask me difficult questions now. <laughs> the hard ones first. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I think it was just generally, it was quite a good little, well put together horror film. Well shot, I think. It's yes. Nice, um, nice cinematography. That's my word of the <laughs> okay. word of the month. I think. Great. Okay. Right. Right. Shall we have a look what's on at the Playhouse? Bit I think we a, should. A bit, a bit of a mixed bunch. Um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Uh, the final chance to see it uh, is going to be on Monday afternoon at two o'clock. Yeah, and we'll come on to that yeah. once we've done the top ten, but right. I think we, we uh, spoke pretty comprehensively about that last week. Yep. Uh, Wednesday, two o'clock, it's going to be X-Men First Class. Which is not as good as Matthew Vaughan's previous film, Kick-Ass. It, you know, it, it has too many characters, and I'm, I'm still a bit annoyed by the duplicity of the fact that the men have to walk around with buckets on their heads while the women have to be in their underwear, <laughs> but... It's it's good 12A fun and no it's yes. it's perfectly fine for what it is. So two for the children and then Wednesday evening probably one not for them Mother's Day. Yeah, which is a remake of a trauma film from the 1980s with um, Rebecca De Mornay, who is most famous for Risky Business. It's it's essentially the same film as the trauma film, but more, but nastier. And uh, it's essentially a home invasion movie. And if you're not a fan of things like Funny Games or Cherry Tree Lane, then you'll find it very difficult to sit through. Right. Um, on to Berwick and a real mixed bunch here. First of all, tomorrow night they've got uh, Honey 2. Which is a pointless sequel to a film that wasn't very good in the first place. Right. Oh, and before that, tonight, I wish they'd do these things in the right order, they've got Rio. Which oh, is... this afternoon, actually, at 2.30. Okay, which is fine. I mean, Jesse Eisenberg and Anne Hathaway doing the voices. I think that it doesn't need to be in 3D, but it's okay as sort of disposable kids' entertainment. Right. Uh, Half Price Monday, which is on Monday evening, oddly enough. Funny enough. Um, they've got uh, £2.50 to go and see Tangled. Which... I don't think it's a classic Disney effort by any means, and again, the 3D was unnecessary, but it, as sort of post-Shrek fair, it's it's quite well done, and the lantern scene is very beautiful. Right, and also for Half Price Monday, get good value up at the Maltings, The Conspirator. Now, this is the one that, that it's, it's an odd one, because it's the new Robert Redford film, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and it's it was oh, yes. made last yeah, year, but uh, got overlooked a lot in the Oscar nominations, and... Uh, in the end, it is a little bit like a TV drama, the sort of thing that if you're a, a year 10 history student, you'd, you'd watch in like 2 o'clock in the afternoon and then ask to discuss its issues. But I do think that Robert Redford is a good filmmaker with an honest political sensibilities, and it's an interesting story that needed to be told. So, it sounds good value for £2.50. Yeah, I might actually make the journey. And Tuesday is Bridesmaids. And uh, again, we'll come on to that with the, t with the top 10, because it's still in there. Right. So, the box office numbers, Anik, it's... 510785 Mortings 01289 330 999. 
Right, number 10 is The Beginners. Which I like, and as I said, was film of the week when Tom and I were hosting the programme in your absence. If you're not a fan of quirkiness, you will find it hard to sit through, but it does treat its characters very even-handedly and respectfully, and I'm glad that Ewan McGregor is finally getting back to the quality of work he was doing 10 years ago. If you're a fan of his, my recommendation, if you if you're not particularly going to see beginners get a uh, get big fish and the ghostwriter and watch them on a double bill right uh, also good reviews for number nine the guard which is an irish cop movie with brendan gleason but we won't get it for a couple of weeks it's taking all its money in northern ireland and it seems to be doing fantastically well good right um transformers still hideous <laughs> the news is that it's already taken a billion dollars worldwide Gosh. which is just depressing it? move on right number seven is bridesmaids I don't think it's the comic masterpiece that a lot of people say it is. I mean, I think Christian Wig is funny. I could have done without a lot of the gross art humour in the toilet scenes. But it, as a comedy, it does its job because there are funny things in it. And I'm glad that it's taking money over some of the other releases. And I hope that it continues to take money in the... Uh, in replace of the change-up, which we'll talk about later. Right, the next two, not getting very good reviews. The Zookeeper at number six. Which is rubbish. Lowest common denominator, Adam Sandler, stable comedy, and Kevin James isn't funny. Right, and number five, and surprise me, it's uh, such poor reviews, uh, Horrid Henry, the movie. Yeah, I was surprised by it. I mean, I... I have to confess that I did laugh at it. I mean, we both like yeah. the setup about, you know, school kids, you know, taking yeah. revenge on their teachers. And there is something of a social undercurrent because it's about a private school opening and trying, and Richard E. Grant as the evil headmaster trying to close down the, you know, the broke public school. So we've got lots of adults who don't get it that have been reviewing it. Well, you often get that with children's films that, you know, a lot of middle-aged male critics going in expecting, you know, this massively artistic film and then being disappointed when, funnily enough, it isn't. Um, I don't know whether it's entirely that. I think that it isn't the most brilliantly constructed film and it doesn't need to be in 3D. But on the basis of the trailer, it works as a comedy and I'm sure that the young children who are its target audience will love it. Great. Well, I dare say if you're a fan of the book, you won't be disappointed. One for the holidays. Number four, Horrible Bosses. Which isn't as funny as it needs to be. It is essentially a rip-off of the Jane Fonda comedy 9 till 5, but with bawdier humour and it doesn't have the strength of its convictions to follow through with the darker jokes. I compared it to 40 Days and 40 Nights, which I think is... Well, there are interesting things in it, but the, the molestation gag at the end of 40 Days and 40 Nights is very misjudged, and I think that Horrible Bosses falls into the same trap. Right. Uh, Cars 2. Which, which is disappointing. I mean, Pixar have had their misses over the years. I mean, I was never a fan of The Incredibles or Ratatouille, because they, they both felt that they were lacking something, and in the case of the latter, I thought that Ratatouille seemed to have been test-screened, although Pixar have stringently denied it. The big problem with Cars 2 is that it feels like John Lasseter has made it for himself and the great success of all the great Pixar films like Toy Story and WALL-E and, and Monsters, Inc. is that they were made for children and adults. And I hope that this is just a little blip and they can get back to making better films. Their new yeah. one, Brave, is coming out later in the year and I hope that's a return to form. Right. Next of the uh, summer blockbusters, Captain America, seems to be doing very well. It is, and I, I think we both like it. I mean, yes. I think it does strike a good balance between the inherent ridiculousness of the comics and taking the plot seriously enough for the internal logic to work. I mean, I like Joe Johnson as a director. He's the guy who made Honey, I Shrek the Kids and Jurassic Park 3. Um, also made things like The Rocketeer and October Sky, in the, which is the most relevant comparison with this because they're both sort of old-fashioned throwbacks. And uh, I have to like The Rocketeer because it's got Timothy Dalton in. As you know, I love to. Timothy Dalton. I think that Hugo Weaving's great. I think it's directed 
stylishly, very effects heavy, but it's well done. And it's not the most substantial or the most brilliant thing ever made, but it's good, solid popcorn fun. And it's going to do well. It will do well. Yeah. And uh, I, I hope it takes more money in 2D. It's an yes. only reservation. Right, at number one, 97% um, favourable rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't think amongst my circle of friends it would make 97%. Right. Uh, Do you want to go I've first? I've got to say, most, more, more people than not that I've been talking to this week have been disappointed by it. Yeah, I said last uh, last Saturday that it was one of those rites of passage films that you've got to see. Um, but it, for me, it wasn't a particularly good uh, filming of what was a, admittedly a difficult book to film. So go and watch it, but don't expect to enjoy it. Okay, well, I think that's fair enough. I, I don't have any problem with it taking as much money. Certainly, I'm, I'm happy that it's yeah. taking more money than Transformers. But I do think that the 3D is unnecessary, and nothing else, because the fact that if you're watching a film in 3D, you get the 30% colour loss, and it's already a very dark, washed-out film, yeah. so it'll be like watching it through a broom cupboard. Yes, although the cinematography... My second work time yeah. using it this week is excellent. Yeah, on the point, that. it's excellent, but the point is yes. that if you watch it in 3D, yes. you don't get, yeah, the, you don't get the benefit yes. of that. No, I... I I think I... Uh, you understand, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. Right, so, recommendations for the week. Well, Captain America, um, Horrid Henry if you've got kids, and Beginners if you haven't. And up at Berwick, we would definitely recommend The Conspirator. Yeah, Robert right. Redford, even if he's soft-peddling, is a very good director. Right. And this week's cult film, we'll be having a look after some music, is going to be Heartless. Mm. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Avril Huntley, love and happiness. Uh, I've had a few problems with my computer this week, so we aren't able to do any trailers for our uh, cult film this week, so I guess we just introduce it, don't we? I think we better go straight in. So, Heartless, um, recent film from Philip Ridley. This is another unusual choice for the cult film slot because yeah. it did come out, well, made in 2009, released last year. I was going to ask that, because I'm looking at it on one, one website and it says 2009, and then another website says 2010. Okay, so. it was made in 2009 and it premiered at the 2009 Fright Fest, which is a horror festival which happens in the autumn, but it didn't get um, distribution until, I think, mid-2010. So, depending on when you go from whether a film is made or when a film gets released, it's either a 2009 or a 2010 film. So where does Fright Fest happen? Fright Fest, I don't know where it happens, but it's two weeks of pretty much nothing but horror films. Sounds your sort of event. Yeah, I mean, I've never been, but <laughs> I'd like to go. I mean, you get... they. The Fright Fest crowd are very interesting because you get a lot of advanced releases of horror films and particularly sort of low-budget horror films. It's, it's like Sundance with blood and guts. <laughs> Let's put it that <laughs> way. So, that, so, yeah, like I said, there's an unusual entry because it is so recent, but I do think that it is starting to get recognition as a bona fide cult film, as evidenced by the fact that Empire Magazine, they're running a feature at the moment called Undiscovered Treasures, and they did a feature on Heartless saying, you know, where did this come from and how isn't this great? So, written and directed by Philip Ridley, who is not very well known, but he is one of Britain's last Renaissance men, because he's, well, he's a painter, he's an author, he's a poet, he's a children's storyteller, he's a composer, he's a playwright, he wrote this fantastic play called The Pitchfork Disney, which is about two children living after an apocalypse, living only on chocolate yeah. and afraid to go out of their house, and then this strange creature called The Pitchfork Disney comes in, and, you know, it's really strange. And he is an occasional film director. Um, you probably haven't seen many of his films, partly because he's only made three of them, but also because neither of his previous two features are available on DVD. Right. Uh, he was one of these directors who started out in the 90s 
with a film called The Reflecting Skin, which was this southern gothic tale, southern gothic being things like Terence Malick and so forth, about sort of homosexual oppression and vampirism in Idaho. I mean, it was described as Days of Heaven as directed by David Lynch. <laughs> so you can imagine how strange it would be. And then, a few years after that, he made an extraordinary film called The Passion of Darkly Noon, which, for my money, is the most underrated film of the 1990s. It's a fantastic film in which Brendan Fraser plays um, a kid called Darkly Noon, who's from a fundamentalist Christian cult. His parents are killed in an accident, and he gets taken in by this mysterious woman who lives in the woods who's married to Viggo Mortensen and it yeah. all, you know, dark fairy tales, fundamentalism all colliding and it ends with, some, uh, with a really heartbreaking scene of the whole building burning down and Brendan Fraser dressing yeah. himself in nothing but red paint and it's really extraordinary. So Heartless, made from, well, depending on which currency we're going for, five million dollars or two and a half million pounds and it was released day in date, which means that you open it in the cinema on Friday and then it gets released on DVD and download the following Monday. So it's done mostly for the, the DVD sales then? Yeah, I mean, in, that, in the case of that sort of thing, I mean, there's a lot of arguments that day in date is actually the way that cinema releases are going to go because of the, that's perceived as one of the best ways to combat piracy and the fact that in the case of Heartless where you've got a very specific genre film, you know, there's a very specific group of yeah. Ridley fans who most of them won't want to go to the cinema, not because they have anything against it, but because of, you know, people using mobile phones and talking and eating nachos and something. Sort of it's not the kind of thing that you do when you're watching a Philip Ridley film. Yeah. So it's a, it's a way of finding a specific audience, but it did mean that it didn't take much money the first time round, although it is starting to get more recognition. So the plot is, uh, you have a young photographer called Jamie, who's played by Jim Sturgis, who was in things like uh, Across the Universe, which is the musical based on the Beatles. He was most recently in um, Peter Weir's film The Way Back. He plays a young photographer who is blessed or cursed, depending on your view, with an unusual red heart-shaped birthmark which covers yes, his Yes, amazing on the trailer, that. Yeah, it's, it's really sort of unusual. Yes. Another one for the makeup guys. Absolutely. So he's got this birthmark which covers most of his face. His father, played by Timothy Spall, has died before the events of the film, and it's implied that they were very, very close, and that he inherited his passion for photography from his father. And he lives with his um, mother, who's played by Ruth Sheen, who's in um, Mike Lee's Another Year, most recently, and uh, his brother and he falls in love with a model that his brother is photographing who's played by a French actress called Clémence Puzzy. I'm glad you got to pronounce that one. <laughs> it's just a Puzzy. Uh, so he's living in a part of East London where, where, you know, in the manner of a lot of East London films, there is a regular crime and violence and early on in the film his mother gets killed along with his neighbour called AJ who's played in a supporting performance by Noel Clarke who's from you know, Doctor Who and Kid yeah. Oxford and so forth. Very good, multi-talented actor. And he comes to believe that crimes such as these are being perpetrated not by rival street gangs of hoodies, but by demons who have come to live on a patch of waste Ooh. ground. And because of the fact that he feels an outcast because of his birthmark, he befriends their leader, who's this guy called Papa B, played by Joseph Maul, who offers him a Faustian pact saying, I will remove your birthmark and therefore allow you to get the girl of your dreams if you commit an act of chaos that will increase the demon's power and presence. So he says, okay, I'll do that. And he gets the birthmark taken away. And he thinks that he's just going to have to do a bit of graffiti, you know, yeah. on somebody's wall. But it turns out he might have to commit murder. Ooh. So how's that sound for a second? Yes, very good. Yeah, so when we talked about Angel Heart um, a few months ago, um, I described it as Faust meets Raymond Chandler by way of the Wicker Man. <laughs> and in the same way, you could describe Heartless as Faust meets Kidulthood as directed by the offspring of Guillermo del Toro and Michael Powell. Because there is a really fantastical fantasy sensibility running through all of this in the midst of 
very sort of gritty yeah. urban street gang stuff. And Ridley, there's, you can see that in Ridley's visual approach because he contrasts, on the one hand, the very familiar shots of East Lo of North and East London, you know, council estates and broken street lamps and graffiti. But that's contrasted with things like, you know, dark alleyways and the blood red sunrise. So it's almost as though the realistic and the supernatural are mingling and fighting yeah. each other for dominance on the screen. And there are big hints of Guillermo del Toro in the design of something. When, um, Jamie goes to meet Papa B. He lives in this abandoned tower block in which he's, an, he's the only tenant. And he, he goes along these corridors that are let, lit with sort of spectral green light. And when he gets in, the walls are sort of peeling like they've got skin on them. And it, it is like the pale man's lair in Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. You've seen Pan's Labyrinth? No. Right. No. Well, there's a section in Pan's Labyrinth when the young heroine goes into the, uh, into this room of, of this villain called the pale man, who's played by, uh, Doug Bradley, who is, uh, a, a monster that eats children and has eyes in it in the palms of its hands. And she goes into this room in which it, the, the walls are sort of pale and green yeah. and there's a banquet full of food that she mustn't eat because if, he, if she eats the food he'll see her and then he'll eat her and so on. It's a really terrifying scene and the Pale Man is one of the scariest monsters of the last ten years. So, on the one hand you have the idea of fantasy and reality colliding violently. I mean, there's a long history of films, particularly in British cinema, about fantasy and reality and intermingling, which is why I mentioned Michael Powell, because of course yeah. you look at The Red Shoes or Black Narcissus, and it's it's all about the idea of you no know, magical surrealism intervening in modern life. But in this case, it's actually about the supernatural not just coexisting with the real, but actually trying to dominate and impose its will upon it to the point at which the people living in the real suffer as a result. And there are big elements of Faustus know with Papa B representing the devil and Mephistopheles being represented by Eddie Marsden's character who is known as Weapons Man. <laughs> big, big clue there yeah. as to where his allegiances might lie and it does share the central idea of Faustus which is you know you can have anything you like but be careful what you wish yeah. for. But as with Angel Heart there is a departure from the Faustian myth in the way that the the relationship with the devil and his prey is orchestrated because if you remember in Faustus although Faust does get his comeuppance in the end. Most of the play of Faustus, whether it's Christopher Marlowe's version or Johann von Goethe's, is about him basically living as a hedonist and using yeah. his powers and gaining magic and becoming a peer and so forth, because he does the magic in front of yeah. the king and so forth. Whereas with Jamie, he doesn't inherit any magical powers. He actually gets quite a rum deal, because on the one hand, he gets his birthmark taken away, which means that he can get off with Clemence Posey and you know, feel accepted for the only time yeah. in his life. But he increasingly finds his life at the mercy of the devil, and there's no way back. And his life becomes a vessel through which the devil's aim of greater moral panic and violence comes about, and he can't stop it because he knows yeah. that he doesn't want to go back to the way that he was. Um, like all Philip Ridley films, there is a blend in the visual style and in the themes between religious allegory and fairy tales. I mean, there is a comparison with The Passion of Darkly Noon, which we'll come on to in a minute, but as a genre piece, it's very interesting because it marries, like I say, the streetwise dialogue of kid adulthood, in which it is kind of people walking around in hoodies yeah. saying youth, and the fact, that, <laughs> the fact that Noel Clark is in it in a supporting role is sort of him giving it his blessing to that, because of course yeah. kid adulthood was one of the first films in recent memory to, to actually take a realistic look at London street culture as it was, rather than yeah. making a moral point in the process. I mean, you can sort of look back to Larry Clark's kids, but that's, that's a much more questionable look at teenagers from the 1990s. So it kind of marries that. So on the one hand, you have the grittiness. On the other hand, you have the poetry of Guillermo del Toro and Clive Barker. That end of horror, which is very close to fantasy in the sense that, you no, know, the horrific can be beautiful. And 
although it struggles to sort of weave these two elements together in its first few minutes, it doesn't take very long for the effect to become hypnotic, and you get that same sense that you get with all great fantasy filmmakers, which is, I don't entirely understand what's going on, but I can't look away. It is a mesmeric film. Um, within that, there are references to a number of individual horror movies. I mean, this is just this is the genre fan in me coming yeah. out just to spot it. I mean, there is a character called She, who is um, a heavily tattooed gangster who has a claw for one hand, which if you've read Clive Barker's Candyman or seen the film that it's based on, based on it uh, by Bernard Rose, it's the same idea of you have this this sort of archetypal bogeyman who is either the vessel of pure supernatural evil or is a key to understanding where the character's sanity lies. And I don't want to give away, you know, yeah. which of these he turns out to be, but suffice to say he's a pivotal character. There are also strong references to Nightmare on Elm Street because of... Do you remember the bit in Nightmare on Elm Street when, um, I think it's Heather Langenkamp wakes up and she's got slashes across her chest yeah, where yeah. I think it's just after the dream sequence where Freddy's been scraping his nails along yes, the walls. Yeah. So there is a reference to that. And there's also a reference in the fact that when Jamie's in the block of flats and he's trying to go back on the deal he's just made with Papa B, Weapons Man puts him in his place by having an invisible force hurl him into the ceiling <laughs> and he kind of bounces off the ceiling <laughs> and off the floor, which is like the vortex of blood sequence in yeah. Run Elm Street. And there are, I suppose, loose connections with Angel Heart or Jacob's Ladder because of the idea that it could all be happening in somebody's mind, which of course yeah. dates back to, well, if you want to go all the way back to The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from the 1920s, which is the first film to ever have the twist of either it was all in your mind or it was all yeah. a dream, but not as cheesy as it was all a dream. But there is, within all this, a comparison with Ridley's previous film, The Passion of Darkly Noon, because you have a protagonist who has a very warped view of the world. In the case of Darkly Noon, it's because, like I say, he was brought up in a religious cult so that he thinks that even the act of being naked is a sin in, in the eyes of God. And he, yeah. over the course of the film, Brendan Fraser is forced to change his worldview because the woman who's taken him in is in love with Viggo Mortensen and he becomes incredibly jealous and just loses his mind. In that way, you have Jamie, who is implied to have a history of mental illness, quite what kind of mental illness you're never entirely sure but suffice to say he's a sensitive young man and like Darkly Noon there are very prominent Christian imagery throughout Heartless so you have you no know, Jamie's house being full of icons which belongs to it which belong to his mother you have yeah. sort of the Catholic candles which people light and also when you go into Papa B's flat you have a series of lampshades on the wall which cast shadows in the shape of a cross uh -huh. so, so there's there's all these kind of images yeah. running through in the background which you can sort of pick up on if you choose to read into it there is also a central comparison because of the fact that both Darkly Noon and Heartless start on relatively realistic ground. In the case of Darkly Noon, it starts with a car crash which kills yeah. Brendan Fraser's parents. And then they, they pull you through this, you know, having set you up in the first five minutes saying this is, this is normal or this is real. You then get pulled headlong into this world where increasingly nothing makes sense, but yeah. yet somehow everything makes sense. And in the case of Darkly Noon, what starts off as a film about no indoctrination in a blinkered worldview and how basically Brendan Fraser has been completely mistreated by his upbringing. It turns into effectively a modern day Grimm's fairy tale about sex and witchcraft and the ending is every bit as terrifying as the ending of The Wicker Man. Yeah. And I don't, that's high praise because I love The Wicker Man. Yeah. Um, so, but it's the whole idea of you, you start off believing that one side is very clearly deluded and one side is no intelligent, but then the boundaries start to shift until eventually you just go, you know what, I don't know, but I'm just going to go with it and lose myself in it. And that yeah. you get that very, that very heartbreaking and very terrifying experience, which you get with the best horror of just losing yourself in the yeah. story. Heartless never quite reaches the transcendent euphoric terror which Ridley achieved with that. 
But there are a number of, of really terrifying scenes in Heartless, and this is the point where you might start to squirm, so I won't focus on it. <laughs> You're getting to know me. Yes, well, no, I just like to, <laughs> to judge these things. There is a secret. I mean, I'm a seasoned horror fan. You know, I, I yes. can sit through most things. I can sit through Hellraiser. Yeah. I can sit through Nightmare on Elm Street. I can even sit through some of Lucio Fulci, although I don't like his work at all. And mm. he made things like Zombie and the New York Ripper, yeah. which is one of the worst films ever made. But even, in, even for someone as used to blood and guts as me, there were at least two moments in Heartless where I just crawled into the <laughs> fetal position and said, yeah. please make it end, but don't, because I'm really enjoying it. The most terrifying moment in it is what's become known as the cling film scene, where Jamie has been told by Papa B that in order to to repay the debt that he's earned for taking away his birthmark, yeah. he's got to go out and kill a man and cut out his heart while it's still alive and put it on the steps of a church. And he's got three years down. So what he does is he... He approaches a, a gigolo in uh, the London streets and you know, they go back to his flat and the gigolo thinks, you know, this is you know, unusual kid because he says, I want you to be tied up and I, and I want you to wrap, I want going to wrap you in cling film. He's saying, okay, you know, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. And then, so having kind of wrapped him up in this strange cocoon of cling film, Jamie pulls out this curved knife and you can hear the muffled screams of the guy coming through the cling <laughs> film. And it, it puts you right in the middle of that terror and you... It's that, again, that wonderful thing with the best horror movies where you're absolutely terrified, but you can't stop watching it. And it's mm. not gratuitous, it's because of the fact that it feeds back into all the earlier imagery about the film. I mean, there's a... You have Jamie emerging from this... There's a very prominent image of Jamie emerging from a cocoon after his birthmark has disappeared. And uh, so that sort of feeds ironically into that, because instead of being a yeah. cocoon of skin, it's a cocoon of cling film. Mm. And also, it's the idea of... Because Jamie has made a pact with the devil, he has lost his own heart, and so yeah. the act of cutting out someone else's is a sort of ironic gesture of that. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of see where all of this is coming from, and it's, it's not really worth labouring the point. There is a recurring image in the film of immolation, or setting oneself on fire, which, is obviously, which also has very prominent religious connotations, yeah. perhaps less so in the Christian world, but, but no, in the old days. And Ridley shoots flame in this film as if it is another character. I mean, I don't know whether it's actual sort of, well, not real fire, but fake fire, or whether some of it is CGI, but it is the way that the, the flames sort of congregate around, whether it's, you know, just a burning bottle like a Molotov cocktail or actually burning the characters. It does feel like a separate presence inveigling its way yeah. into the film. And in the same way as there is a double meaning to heartless, you know, on the one hand, you know, the emotional side, and on the other hand, the physical act of not having a heart, there is a the idea that fire is both the means by which our hero transforms and you know, Jamie gets rid of his birthmark and becomes the man he always wanted but it's also the thing that leads to his destruction so and there is a so at the start when Papa B gives him a, uh, says okay I'm going to give you a Molotov cocktail I want you to set yourself on fire because if you set yourself on fire it'll you'll go into this cocoon and the birthmark will disappear but that, that's it, so that's you know, the, the using fire to cleanse the yeah. old self, like, you know, removing impurities from a metal yeah. where you have to heat it up and then skim it off and skim it off until you yeah. get the block of gold or silver, whatever you have. But that's contrasted in the final scene where he's been set on fire by one of the gangs who, well, not to give too much away, but he has might, he might have killed. <laughs> and um, as he's slowly burning to death, he has a flashback sequence where he remembers a meeting with his father who says, no, your birthmark is a blessing and no one will ever see the world like you. Mm. And it's the idea of... He, of at the moment of death, he realizes that the only thing he ever loved was his father, and now that he now he's lost everything. So it's a very tragic moment. If there is a flaw with Heartless, 
there is a problem with the final twist in that when there's this might be a genre problem because there are lots of films based on the idea of is it real or isn't it real which yeah. have to come down on one side or the other because if you remember the ending of jacob's ladder if you don't want to know the ending of jacob's ladder turn off for 10 seconds when you've gone through all these strange experiences following tim robbins and then it, it transpires that he it's all been in his mind and he's dying in the middle of vietnam or yeah. you look at something like total recall in which you know the issues left open about whether it's all a dream or whether it's implanted yeah. or whether it actually happened whether he and um, uh, Rachel Dakotan are going to start the new world on Mars as Adam and Eve. So, although the ending does pack a certain amount of punch in showing you know, all the, the carnage that Jamie has wrought without knowing it and showing how just strange his mind is, and although you do get a great performance by Timothy Spall, there's something slightly unsatisfying about it insofar as you thought, well... I understand why you had to do it, but it might have been more radical to leave it open. It's like the problem with Shutter Island. Shutter Island, no, Martin Scorsese film with no, playing with old B-movie cliches about no people pretending to be yeah. other people and who are the patients and who are the doctors. But again, that would have been more effective if they just sort of left it hanging yeah. like something like Mulholland Drive where you're left to make up your own mind or Inception, of course. So, to sum up, because we've got a few new releases to get through, I don't think it's quite as good as The Passion of Darkly Noon, but then, frankly, very few things are. It's a really great horror film which is visually haunting. Jim Sturgis is absolutely terrific. I think it's the best thing he's done, although I like him in The Way Back. Philip Ridley just has this fantastic visual sensibility which is original and doesn't feel like it's ripping off you know, all the great Spanish horror we've had in recent years. I just hope that it does find the audience it deserves and that we don't have to wait another 15 years for him to make a film. Right. And I guess anything with Timothy Spall has got to be good. Absolutely. He's a brilliant yeah. actor. Yeah. Of course, I think his best work is still topsy-turvy, but that's only because that's the only film you'll get to see him dancing in a dress. <laughs> yes, he does those sort of characterizations really well, doesn't he? Absolutely. Right, we'll be having a look at the week's new releases after we've paid a few bills. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. In fact, we did that little trailer for you there, Daniel, but you're not actually here this week, are you? No, I'm off for a couple of weeks because I'm going to Liverpool on Thursday. Sounds nice. So I'll be back on the, what is it now, the 6th, so I'll be back on the 25th. 25th, right. And uh, next week we're taking a break. Yes. Or well, specifically, I'm taking a break because yep. you're still working. Yeah, because between 10 and 11 we'll have Mumby's Best Bits. <laughs> if you like, yes. yes. A compilation of um, rants. the last few months <laughs> of rants, yes. <laughs> and then uh, after I come back in two weeks' time, we shall be doing Oh Lucky Man. Which should be good fun. Yeah, another Lindsay Anderson film. Which I did watch when it came out. Uh, well, actually, probably a little while after it came out, because uh, I'd have been too young when it first came out. But uh, I've got the DVD, so I'm going to watch it again. We did a bit of next when it first came out came out. Because uh, it's a 15 now and the X certificate only became an 18 yeah, later on. Yeah, must have on. been. I guess I was only 13 at the time, I would have been. Yeah. You didn't have the guts to just sneak in by wearing an extra pair of socks or something like I that. I used to go watch Mary Poppins. <laughs> I don't have a problem with Mary Poppins. You kind of use that as the get out clause. I love no, Mary Poppins. No, I was... It was more a comment about me, not about... Fair uh, enough. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Mary Poppins is shorter, let's put it that yeah, way. I, and I was very short at the time as well, <laughs> so I don't know what to got into that. So, we're a lucky man in uh, two weeks' time. Before that, we've got a few new releases to uh, to look at. And yes. the first one seems to be getting good reviews, so let's see whether you think the same. It's Super 8. Okay, new film from... J.J. Abrams, or as Tom Davidson likes to call him, Lens Flare Abrams, which is what he called him in the week you were off, um, producer of things like Lost and Fringe on TV, also produced Cloverfield on the big screen, also 
has directed a couple of films because he made Mission Impossible 3, which is mm, considered by many to be the best of the films. I myself have a, have a soft spot for the first one. It's completely ridiculous, but it is helmed by Brian De Palma, so it's quite stylish. And he most recently directed the Star Trek reboot, which by all accounts is very good, but I haven't seen it. So it's billed as an homage to Steven Spielberg's early movies, uh, specifically E.T. and Close Encounters, and Spielberg is actually involved as executive producer. It's also, um, the title comes from the fact that it's an homage to the format of Super which you know, for people who aren't as old as you or I, it's uh, an eight, it was a format of eight millimeter film where you could shoot uh, with a different with a small camera short films and edit them together. And it was how a lot of filmmakers like Spielberg and George yeah. Lucas, it's how they learned their craft, just making short films at the yeah. weekend. So the story is, it's set in 1979 when a group of young kids are making a Super 8 film about zombies. They're filming at a train depot when, out of nowhere, a freight train collides with a pickup truck and derails, and um, after this, you know, the, the guy who's driving the pickup truck just walks away and says, no, forget this happened. And sooner or later, the military have become involved and they've cordoned the whole area oh. off because it turns out that that train might have been on its way from Area 51 and there might be aliens involved as first dogs and then people start to go missing. Ooh. Yes. So, I see that being your sort of film. Well, yes, but it could also be yours because you're yes. a fan of early Spielberg. Yes, as well, yeah, indeed. So, so the thing about J.J. Abrams is that he is the master of hype. Because you remember when, I mean, I was never a big fan of Lost, but you remember when it was, whenever Lost would be on television, you'd have the teaser trailers. Yeah. And it would always be, you'd never quite see what was going on. And yeah. you'd have to wait three months before yes. you found out yeah. what it was. And then it was a polar bear on a desert island. <laughs> and that's when I gave up with Lost. Yes. Um, so he's very, very secretive about his his projects to the point at which when this was being made the only thing available on imdb was a one sentence plot summary no cast information at all just that he was directing it and this is what it's about and in a way he has fallen into the trap of being a victim of his own hype i mean all the spielberg references are there you have you know the kid wanting to be the in crowd you have the bunch of outsiders which is from the goonies which of course spielberg produced you've got you no know, the idea of though there's a there's a death in the family and they're all a lot of Spielberg's films are about children wanting to reconnect with their parents or the other way around, and you've got the involvement of the military. So, as well as Abrams sort of tipping his hat to Spielberg as if to say, I wouldn't have got here without the things yeah. that you did in the early 80s, in the late 70s, it's also a way of Spielberg sort of using another director to recapture the films that he used to make in the same way as when he went back and did the fourth Indiana Jones film. He was very specific, saying, I don't want to use a bunch of digital effects. I want to make it. I want to be the director that I was... 20 or 30 years ago. Whether he managed that or not is up for debate. Um, I think in the end, the touchstones are a little too familiar insofar as if you grew up with Close Encounters and E.T. the first time round, which um, you might you might have done, actually, because would you have seen E.T. the first time round? Uh, yes, I did, yes. And did you see, were you old enough to see Close Encounters? Um, probably not, right. I suspect. But you um, would have caught it later, yes, of course. Yeah. Which you think is the better of the two? Because Close uh, Encounters is always the one that's taken seriously, but I'm not too sure. I liked E.T. Yeah, yeah, I like E.T. as well. So I think it's, if you grew up with it the first time around, you will sit there thinking, I've seen this film about half a dozen times before, but with it's just yeah. got bigger special effects. I also think that if you want a really great, intimate film about young boys learning filmmaking, go and see Son of Rambo. You know, yeah. Son of Rambo, which came out a few years ago with um, Bill Milner in and... Um, Oh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but a really fantastic, low-budget British comedy about a young brethren boy who has accidentally shown a copy of Rambo First Blood when he's staying over at a friend's, and then he helps him make a small film, and it's really charming and very well made. So, it's not as good as Spielberg's early work first time round, and it's not as good as Son of Rambo, but as enjoyable, slightly disposable popcorn fodder, it does its job, and it's good fun. Great, so... 
One to go and see. It's gone to go and see, but don't expect anything yes. massively original. Okay, um... Nothing original, probably I'll summarise the next one. It's Jim Carrey's latest. Uh, it says here, blandly inoffensive and thoroughly predictable, it's called Mr Popper's Penguins. Yeah, new film from Mark Waters, starring Jim Carrey, based on a children's story of the same name from the late 30s. So, no, it's not just come out of a, a spec yeah. script session. story is that Jim Carrey plays Thomas Popper Jr., who inherits a penguin after his father dies, but due to a misunderstanding with the people who distribute penguins, he ends up with six of them rather than one. And uh, he intends... First off, to give them away to the local zoo, but after his children fall in love with them because he's divorced from his wife and you know, he's got two kids, he decides, well, maybe I'll keep them and see what happens. And meanwhile, there's stuff going on in the background with his job because he, he's trying to demolish the restaurant where he used to go with his father and build it up as a housing development. Angela Lansbury is playing his his estate agent, you know, Angela Lansbury doing one of her forceful scenery-chewing performances. <sighs> so, yes. You're not a fan of Angela Lansbury. <laughs> no. Or Jim Carrey, but anyway, this, yeah, is, this I mean, is not boding well. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does look inoffensive, like the, the summary says, and the fact is that it's quite reasonable. I mean, Mark Waters is, is an up-and-down director, because on the one hand, he made Mean Girls and Freaky Friday and yeah. the Spiderwick Chronicles with Freddie Highmore in, which is very good. On the other hand, he made Just Like Heaven and Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, both of which are rubbish. And... Although we're neither of us are massive fans of Jim Carrey, I do think that as he's got older, he has learnt to rein himself in a bit more. I was watching Batman Forever again recently, in which he yep. is everything turned up to 13 and <laughs> bouncing all over the place, and you just, you know, until Tommy Lee Jones comes along and starts reining him in, you do think, Jim, I know you're having great fun, but none of that is rubbing off on me. Will you kindly stop doing it and just be yourself? Or maybe you are just being yourself. So, I think... Partly as a result of the fact that he's maybe too older to do the rubbery face shtick, and partly because of the fact that he's done stuff like The Truman Show and Man on the Moon and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know, proper good stuff. He's learned to sort of, to balance it a bit more, so it's no longer just the wacky, zany, gurning Jim Carrey performance that we became too used to. It is completely predictable. You could sketch out the plot on the back of an envelope, and it is very familiar territory, but there are a few laughs, and the penguins are quite cute. Yeah. I mean, Truman Show is okay, but the rest... Oh, I'm, not, I'm not a Jim Carrey fan. Truman Show's not just that. okay, it's Peter Weir's best film. It is okay. Right, so we move on <laughs> yes, to I think we uh, The Change-Up. New comedy from uh, the writers of The Hangover and the director of Wedding Crashes. So well, this isn't boding well no, either. Have you seen Wedding Crashes? <laughs> uh, no. No, the, re the moment I knew that Wedding Crashes wasn't going anywhere was there's a sequence in it where Jane Seymour, you remember from Live and Let Die, yes. and Dr. Quinn Medicine yes. Woman, she comes in... Um, there's a sequence where Owen Wilson is sitting on her bed and she comes in saying, no, that her husband doesn't pay any attention to her even though she's just had her tits done. Mm. And she asks Owen, Wins Owen Wilson to put her hand, his hands there. And he does, and then she calls him a pervert and walks off. And you just think, okay, what was the point of that apart from getting a very glamorous 50-year-old woman to take her top off and that's yeah. your level of humour? Fine. So, the story is that uh, Jason Bateman, who's in Horrible Bosses, and Ryan Reynolds, who is most recently in The Green Lantern. They're two middle-aged men who went to school together. One of them is now a lawyer who is married with three kids. The other is a quasi-employed man-child, which is movie-speak for... What? <laughs> it, which movie-speak for, he can lounge around all day and we don't have to worry where the money's coming from. Oh, right. Uh, so, these two friends who both envy each other's lives, goodness knows why, when... and... They say, no, I'd like to change places with you. And the next morning, they wake up, surprise, surprise, in each other's bodies. And, oh, the hijinks ensue, or not. 
Um, it's a premise that we've seen a thousand times before. I mean, obviously, you've yeah. got both versions of Freaky Friday, which itself was later remade as It's a Boy-Girl Thing, which is absolutely horrendous, in which you get a boy and a girl switching places. And, I mean, there have some, been some of the positive reviews to have compared this to Face Off, but at least Face Off was stupid fun. You know, that's the film where Nicolas Cage and John Travolta yeah. swap face. John Woo is a proper action director. It's not as bad as a boy-girl, as It's a Boy-Girl Thing, because it has less lazy jokes about genitalia. But it is still barrel-scraping nonsense, and it's you know, the, got the one idea about what it would be like if these two people changed places and played against time. That idea has been done so many times, it now stinks. Do something original and grow up. So it sounds as if most of the reviewers agree with you on that one. I should hope so. Right, hopefully slightly more uh, positive is going to be the tree. Yeah, it's an interesting French-Australian co-production uh, directed by Julie Botticelli, who started out her career as an assistant director on Three Colours Blue which is you know, the Christoph Kieślowski Three Colours trilogy. Right. A very interesting European series of European films. And uh, Three Colours Blue has a very good performance by Juliette Binoche, who right. was later in Chocolat and is a very good actress. Oh, yes, I remember. Yes. yes. Um, starring Charlotte Gainsbourg, who is the daughter of jazz musician Serge Gainsbourg, and was most recently in Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which is a very controversial film. Um, there was... I don't know if you followed the, com the, uh, the controversy at Cannes with Lars von Trier, because his new film Melancholia no. with Kirsten Dunst played it. Can and uh, he got thrown out of the Cannes Festival for saying, probably as a joke, that he was a little bit of a Nazi. <laughs> oh, yes. yes, I think he meant it as a gag, but it, the, the Cannes yeah. folk are a bit tough on that sort of thing. Um, it's based on a book called Our Father Who Art in the Tree by Jodie Pascoe, who um, played Camille in um, Red Dwarf and is actually married to Robert Llewellyn. So yeah. it's an interesting way to meet, you know, four hours a day in the makeup trailer. You, you kind of bond with people that way. So the story revolves around um, the O'Neill family who are living in the small town of Boona in Queensland, Australia. And at the beginning of the film, the father dies of a heart attack at the wheel of his car, which then trundles and crashes into this, this massive... Um, I think it's a Morton Fig Bay tree, which is next to the family home. And as the film wears on, um, Charlotte Gainsbourg's children become sort of, they want to spend more time in the tree, to the point at which I think it's either her son or her daughter claim that they can actually hear their father's voice coming from the tree. And, you know, she doesn't know what, what's going on, but eventually yeah. the tree starts taking over the house and its roots go into the plumbing and frogs appear in the toilets and eventually the, the tree demolishes the house because of the fact that it's becoming overgrown and the family have to move away. It's a very interesting film. I mean, it's a very good performance by Charlotte Gainsbourg, who is becoming a very accomplished actress, and I think she's also in Melancholia, the new Von Trier film, which, is very, which looks very good. It's a, it's a film about catharsis, about dealing with the death of a loved one, about what happens to the soul after you die, yeah. and about the way in which we sort of connect with the dead. I mean, if you, this... It's in, in many ways, this is the kind of film that, that Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones should have been, because The Lovely Bones took a very similar idea of starting with a very tragic death in the family and then looking at the way in which the dead and the living sort of interact and how the family learns to move on, because, you know, it's The Lovely Bones being the relationships that build up from the yeah. death of Sir Sharon's character. The problem with Lovely Bones, however, was that it was a bit manipulative because it did effectively turn into a revenge story halfway through. This is much more successful. It's a very, it's a simple device of, you know, the tree representing the father and then the father comes to overgrow and dominate the yeah. house and move, yeah. and these move on. But it, it looks pretty well made and it's quite sweet. And I think that if, if you might have to travel to see it, but it will be worth your while. So is this going to be on for the Tyneside? I think it is the Tyneside and uh, they'll be showing it this week, certainly. So catch it while you can. Right. 
And we have another art house to finish with, which is Sarah's Key. A debut feature by <coughs> Gilles Paquet Brunet. I think I'm pronouncing that right. You're getting uh, very good with these uh, French ones. Well, there's a lot of French films out. I have to practice. <laughs> so, based on a novel by Tatiana de Rosne, starring uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, whom you probably know best from things like Four Weddings and a Funeral yes, and indeed, uh, yes. the first Mission Impossible film and Gosford Park, which yes. for me is her best work. Yeah. You know, telling Michael Gambon off, you know, going around fiddling with your guns, and then there's that yes. awkward moment when Imelda Storden speaks out against her and then she loses her job. Yeah. Um, so, Kristen Scott Thomas plays an American journalist who is commissioned to write an article on the infamous Veldiv Roundup of the 1940s, Veldiv being an event in France in 1942 where the puppet government of Vichy France, which was the area of France controlled by the Nazis, rounded up 13,000 Jews and put them in this place called the Velodrome d'Hiver, you know, winter cycle ring yeah. effectively you know with terrible conditions you know no food no water no sanitation kept them there for months at a time and then sent most of them off to extermination camps the ones that lived and through her research into this very harrowing subject matter she comes to discover that the that one of the family that the family who used to live in her parisian apartment actually ended up in one of the camps and she comes to believe that the daughter of the family who's the girl called sarah might still be alive and she becomes obsessed with tracking her down ah. and i mean it's very difficult to make a film about the holocaust from any angle but this is it's a very intelligent way of doing it because it approaches first of all it approaches the subject tangentially because all of the holocaust stuff takes place in the background while yeah. you have Chris yeah. scott thomas's character interacting with other people but also the fact that it's it's the Holocaust being shown and studied through present-day eyes, so Kristen Scott Thomas becomes like the audience, and it doesn't attempt to exactly recreate the Holocaust and say this is exactly what it was like, because, well, how can we know yeah, exactly indeed, what it was yeah. like? There is a comparison, and this is very conditional comparison, with The Pianist, insofar as it's a film about survival more than anything else, and it's about the fact that... You know, in the case of The Pianist, a lot of Jews betrayed their fellow kin, and the fact that Adrian Brody's character wasn't particularly heroic, but he just yeah. happened to, to have a lot of luck and a lot of guts in order to survive. I don't think it's as good as The Pianist, because that is, for me, one of Roman Polanski's very best films, and it's really harrowing and heartbreaking. But it's very well made, it's very well judged, and it's a very fine performance from Kristen Scott Thomas. Sounds like a film to go see. It does. I mean, obviously, because of its subject matter, it won't be for everyone. I think it's a 15 certificate, so I don't know Again, whether there's tough one for the time side. Yes, but yeah. yeah, anything with Kristen Scott Thomas is worth seeing. Yeah, and it's just an interesting reflection after the uh, events in Norway a couple of weeks ago. We do need to uh, keep bringing films out about just to remind people just how bad yeah, I events were back in the Holocaust. I hadn't considered it like that, but I yes. think you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah, so, so films to go see this week out of the new releases then. You'd say Super 8? Um, I'd say the film of the week is Sarah's Key with the tree yeah. second, and Super 8's all right, but like I say, it's, I don't think it's going to live up to all of its hype. Right. So, uh, some thoughts for you for things to go see. Um, well, out of the rest of the top ten, like I say, um, Horrid Henry, Captain America and uh, Beginners out of the, if you're not fan on the new releases. Great. Have a great holiday. I'm sure I will. So we'll see you in two weeks' time. Yes, we will. Doing Oh Lucky Man. Yes. And you're going to stay and twiddle the knobs till 11 o'clock. Well, I wouldn't put it quite like that, Richard, yes. but yes, I shall be here for another half an hour playing a few soundtrack items. Right. And I'm, uh, I'm off to Edinburgh. To right. watch a rugby game. Fantastic. I hope they win. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Emphasis on the hope. <laughs> yes. Here's Adele. Iron Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.